It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Big stories. Big guests. The Big Picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3. 770 CHQR. I would want to tell him about how I felt when I first heard the joke. Um, well, the jokes, plural, about how I tried to end my life. How it felt as a 13 years old to just... Think about dying because you think that because a 40 year old man say so that you should die. That's the voice of uh, Jeremy Gabriel, who's uh, at the center of this case involving comedian Mike Ward, a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Is it funny to tell a joke about a 13 year old with a disability? Well, probably not. Is it discrimination to do so? That was the, the question before the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, look, the comedian Mike Ward is a comedian who kind of goes to those dark and uncomfortable places, who's making jokes about taboo topics, really so that you're laughing at him and his willingness to do that, rather than necessarily the subject of the joke. The situation, and this is all very Quebec-specific. Mike Ward's a comedian based in Quebec. Jeremy Gabriel is based in Quebec. Way back in 2005, he went on a Quebec television show. Now, he, he has treacherous Collins syndrome. He had undergone 33 operations and was on this TV show to demonstrate, despite how all of that, he could still sing. He went on to sing the national anthem at a Montreal Canadiens game. He then met Celine Dion. He even sang for the Pope. He kind of became a public figure, which is pretty relevant in the Supreme Court's decision here. Mike Ward in one of his uh, routines, which is entirely in French, by the way, otherwise I would play some of it for you, uh, made some jokes about this young man. Uh, His mother, the young man's mother, decided that she would go to the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal, arguing discrimination. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada today, a 5-4 decision in support of Mike Ward's and his freedom of expression. And they note that a discrimination claim is not and must not become an action in defamation. So this isn't about what he said in terms of whether it was mean or whether it went too far. So the question of what constitutes discrimination. Now, the majority finds that because this young man had become a public figure and the jokes stemmed from that, it was not a protected grounds when it comes to discrimination. So raises some really interesting points. Joining us to talk more about it is uh, Professor Dwight Newman, who's a uh, professor at the University of Saskatchewan, a Canada research chair in Indigenous rights and constitutional and international law. Professor Newman, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, I'm happy to be with you. It seems so odd that we have a, a, a case that's gone on this long, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada about a comedian and his jokes. But what, what are the important issues that this case highlights to you? 
Um, well, I mean, it ends up being an important case about freedom of expression uh, because uh, at the at the Human Rights Commission in uh, Quebec, uh, there was going to be an award of uh, $40,000 against the, uh, the comedian in question, Mike Ward. Um, and that was upheld um, in the uh, the courts in Quebec. Um, and then there ends up being a 5-4 split at the Supreme Court of Canada over essentially a, a sort of balance between freedom of expression and uh, discrimination complaints. Um, and uh, whether, uh, whether freedom of expression by a comedian can be limited by somebody um, uh, feeling upset by the, the joke, in essence. Um, and uh, it really has a lot to say about um, uh, artistic expression, freedom of expression more generally, and just the interaction with, uh, with issues of, uh, of discrimination and alleged discrimination. Uh, the ruling talks about hurtful expression, and by definition, I'm sure hurtful expression can hurt, and it's pretty clear Jeremy Gabriel felt hurt by these, these jokes. But it, it says that hurtful expression and harm suffered are insufficient to constitute discrimination. D- does this... Uh, help us maybe further clarify what is discrimination, what constitutes discrimination? Oh, it does, yes. And I think the majority judgment is uh, uh, very helpful in clarifying that um, uh, being offended or hurt by expression isn't going to be considered to amount to discrimination in the context of human rights codes, or or in Quebec it's called the Quebec Charter of uh, of Rights. Um, but I think that that kind of conclusion would apply in other provinces as well. Um, they also set out a more complex legal test on the exact requirements uh, that uh, someone claiming under um, that this sort of case would need to establish. And I think those also make clear uh, that there would need to be a, a much more severe impact uh, from, uh, from expression before uh, it would amount to a, a discrimination issue. Well, and as noted, I mean, this was a 5-4 decision, uh, so there were four judges uh, on the dissent, and th- there was one part of the dissent that you highlighted, which to me is, is raises all kinds of questions. They, they said, Mr. Ward uh, cannot rely on the simple assertion that his comedy is art. He must point to why the harm to his expressive rights is such that the speech in this case should not be considered discrimination. Is it their position that it's up to him to prove that this was not discrimination? Um, well, from that paragraph, it appears to be, and I was uh, startled by that paragraph because it really seemed to be reversing the uh, the burden. Right. Um, someone who has freedom of expression shouldn't have to justify every instance of their expression um, if there's uh, going to be a finding against their expression in the the limited circumstances where expression is constrained. Um, someone else should have that burden to uh, to establish that. Um, and uh, so I was quite startled by the tone of parts of the dissenting opinion. And I'm frankly surprised that this is only a five to four opinion. I would have thought a larger majority on the court would have found the way the majority did. Well, and, and again, I mean, it just goes down, I guess, as, as another dissent, which doesn't have any practice in law. But I mean, you know, had one vote gone the other way, we'd be talking about something very different and how that might be applied in practice. I honestly have no idea. 
Well, that's right. I mean, had one vote gone the other way, we'd have a very different precedent from this case. And if the law were as stated by the dissent, um, uh, what has ended up being the dissent, I think it would have been uh, uh, constraining on speech, um, constraining on comedy context, on artistic expression context. Um, and uh, now the dissent stands as a dissent. It may still impact the law in future, but at least there is a, a precedent um, uh, that's uh, fairly strongly in favor of, uh, of freedom of expression. Um, and I mean, in, in saying that, I mean, um, most of us aren't going to like the particular expression at stake here. Um, it doesn't sound to me like a very funny joke, um, but um, the price of having freedom is that people sometimes use that in ways that any given one of us doesn't agree with, and the, the majority has uh, reaffirmed that here. Right, and we've had some significant cases in this country dealing with freedom of speech, and obviously then that, that sets the, the tone, it sets a precedent for, for future cases. Uh, you know, the court references, uh, the majority references, references the Whatcott case uh, a few times in, in this ruling. That stands out as one. Where, where do you think this is going to end up ranking in terms of those kinds of significant decisions that, you know, courts are going to come back to in the future? Well, I think this is a significant decision. I think it's a, a really interesting decision in some of the things that it raises. So I think it's one that uh, that people will look to. Um, frankly, part of why they will is because there is the division. I uh, was talking with one of my colleagues, will it be one of the, the classic cases that students read? Um, and it might be. I mean, there's enough in it. There might almost be too much in it uh, in some ways. Um, uh, there are a few different layers of, of issues here, like understanding the the kind of comedy at issue and so on, um, the issues around how does this connect artistic expression more broadly. I mean, it's a really interesting and important decision, um, but it does have a lot in it. So people will look at it in various ways. Certainly one factor that worked in, in Mr. Ward's defense, as as the court says, uh, that that this was, or at least that, that, that Jeremy was a target because of his disability, not because of his disability, but because he was a public figure, and therefore that distinction was not based on a prohibited ground. I, I wonder if this case had been different if this had been a comedian, you know, just randomly pointing to somebody in, in the audience and, and making comments like this, somebody who was not a public figure. How, how relevant was that in, in ultimately the court deciding in, in Mr. Ward's favor? Yeah, I mean, this is something to to analyze carefully from the the decision. Um, I think that uh, uh, it's something that lawyers will keep looking at this carefully on. Um, at a practical level, uh, I think that that was a very important factor. Um, but it does raise the question, what happens if a comedian just targets somebody in the, the audience for humor? I mean, it's sort of what uh, sometimes people might think that they're uh, um, uh, subject to when they go to a, a live comedy show. Um, but someone could take that differently. Um, and uh, I think uh, there's the possibility that uh, on the way the law is described, here it could play out differently but i think that's something that also warrants more analysis of the opinion well we'll leave it there uh, as you say the follow-up from this uh, i think will be significant but uh, do appreciate uh, your insight on all of this professor newman thanks for joining us oh thank you all the best uh dwight newman uh, professor at the university of saskatchewan canada research chair in indigenous and constitutional and international law and so the one passage he highlights and, and that was almost kind of chilling the idea that You've said something bad. Now it's up to you to explain why that should not be considered discrimination. And that's essentially what uh, the dissenting judges said here. 
that Mr. Ward therefore cannot rely on the simple assertion that his comedy is art. He must point to why the harm to his expressive rights is such that the speech in this case should not be considered discrimination. And these are justices sitting on the Supreme Court of Canada. That, that really jumped out. But ultimately, it was the right decision. Shouldn't have been as close as it was. Uh, because this was a comedian making jokes. Deliberately making dark and offensive jokes. That was the whole point. Now, again, if, if this had all been in English, it would be easy enough for me just to play this for you. And you could judge for yourself. And there were a couple of different times that Jeremy Gabriel was mentioned in, in Mike Ward's stand-up. Part of one of his routines, and, and I think maybe this was based on, on, on a faulty assumption that, uh, that, that Jeremy Gabriel had a, had a fatal Ill, or a possibly fatal illness, a terminal illness. And so there was some line along the fact or some joke along the lines of, you know, this guy got famous. Uh, he got famous because he was supposed to die and he didn't die. You know, what's what's up with that? That kind of and again, I, I'm not doing the jokes any justice here. And again, they were meant to be dark jokes. You're not necessarily laughing at the joke. You're laughing at the awkwardness of the comedian going there. Uh, he referred to Jeremy as that ugly singing kid. Talked about the, the subwoofer he has on his head. Again, when, when you say a deadpan like that, or if you read a transcript, that would seem kind of mean. It's kind of cruel. And ultimately, yeah, sometimes comedians are kind of mean or kind of cruel. Do we need laws that deal with that? Anyway, your thoughts on this case. We're going to hear later on from uh, Julius Gray, who was the lawyer representing uh, Mike Ward in this case, uh, which again goes all the way back to his decision to appeal this Quebec Human Rights Tribunal decision. And years later, here we are, the Supreme Court of Canada in a 5-4 decision in Mr. Ward's favor. The Supreme Court ruled that Mike Ward did not discriminate against Jeremy Gabriel. Uh, that essentially these were jokes, jokes in poor taste, perhaps, but jokes nonetheless. Joining us to talk more about this ruling and uh, its implications, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, as mentioned, Julius Gray. I was with the firm Gray Casgrain in Montreal and represented Mike Ward in this case. Uh, Mr. Gray, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. Uh, so let me get your reaction, your, your client's reaction as well to this decision today. Well, he was very happy. He uh, wrote me, and, and, and he's written on Twitter, so you can check what he has to say. Mm-hmm. I was overjoyed, and I think it's not only for my client, although it is, of course, and it's not only uh, for myself, uh, though it, it was a very high point in my career, but it's for liberty in Canada in general. Right, and, and, and my understanding is that's why you got involved in this case in, in the outset. What, what did you see as, as important issues in this case that needed well, to be dealt with? Well, the important with? thing is that freedom of expression, and everything came out of the majority judgment, that freedom of expression is, uh, has to be given a very large, perhaps not absolute, but almost absolute uh, sense, that uh, such things as discrimination and uh, dignity cannot be interpreted so broadly as to make just about any insult or any a bitter exchange or any joke uh, subject of a human rights complaint, that uh, individuals' uh, uh, subjective perceptions of having been insulted or uh, humiliated are not sufficient to justify an action, and that basically people who want to speak in public and say things that are unconventional or perhaps not um, uh, popular 
should not have fear. I mean, professors uh, who are uh, under attack in these days of cancel culture, I mean, journalists, I mean, writers, uh, uh, artists, stand-up comics, of course, uh, those are the major issues. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the majority uh, in their ruling, they said the impugned comments exploited, rightly or wrongly, a feeling of discomfort in order to entertain. Uh, your client was obviously being provocative, pushing the envelope, and maybe the jokes were in bad taste and poor taste, perhaps. But is any of that relevant in, in a legal sense, or is it relevant no, in determining the, discrimination? No, the Supreme Court is not a theater critic, so they right. don't look at the merits of it. They only look to see if it crosses that very that line, which is difficult to cross, the line of hate and and dehumanization. Uh, so uh, they don't give an evaluation of the value of what was said. Uh, the feeling of discomfort is not by itself enough to justify a human rights complaint, and it shouldn't be, because otherwise uh, we will not be able to say anything other than. Uh, uh, motherhood and apple pie, and that is not a good society. It's interesting because uh, the, the court, I think, and, and you know, this is not just a ruling in, in support of freedom of expression, but it, it helps, I think, to to really lay the parameters for what constitutes discrimination, because that's what Absolutely. your client was alleged of, of doing here, wasn't it? Well, discrimination is not simply being insulted or feeling humiliated uh, on account of one of the charter things. It's, uh, you can mention that somebody is handicapped. You can mention that he's black or that he's white or that he, uh, he's male or female. It's not, uh, 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 you cannot have a society which is basically shut down discussion on those issues which it has suddenly decided are fundamental. Uh, uh, quite the contrary, you should discuss them if they're fundamental. So, uh, you know, I think it, this judgment is a blow against cancel culture and uh, against uh, uh, the the restrictions on freedom of expression with which we've all been, all been living. But the, the our society's excessive stress on equality of groups as opposed to liberty of persons. Now, this was a close decision, right? And I mean, 5-4, yes, it could have gone course, the other way. Yeah, but many decisions are 5-4. Yeah. Uh, I've been on, on both sides of 5-4 decisions. Uh, I think the minority judgment is, of course, entitled to great respect and should be read carefully. It may have the seeds of future developments in it, but it's a majority judgment that is the one that has force of law. Yeah. There was one point in the dissent that, that stood out to me. We were talking about this earlier with, with a uh, law professor. The idea of, of reversing the burden here is that the dissenting judges wrote, Mr. Ward cannot rely on the simple assertion that his comedy is art. He must point to why the harm in his, uh, to his expressive rights is such that the speech in this case should not be considered to be discrimination. What do you make of the idea that you know, it's, it's up to your client to have to prove that what he said wasn't discrimination? I think that's, I believe that's incorrect. I noticed they said that, and as I said, they are entitled to great respect for eminent jurists, but I don't think that's right. Uh, so for now, I suppose this, this settles the matter, then, doesn't it? Obviously, it's, it's yes, been a long ordeal for your client, matter. right? There's no other, we no longer have proof of counsel appeals, so it's finished. In a way, the, the, the process is the punishment. This has been, uh, um, you know, a very trying number of years for your client, though, hasn't it? Yes. And for Jeremy Gabriel, for whom yeah. I have the greatest respect and most goodwill in the world. I, I, I don't blame him one bit, uh, but uh, it has been a trying time for everybody. 
Well, we'll leave it there then for now. Uh, Mr. Gray, appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you. All right. Uh, Take care. That is uh, Julius Gray uh, with Gray Cassegrain, a law firm based in Montreal. And uh, he took up this case, represented uh, Mike Wards all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. A decision that went his way. So initially, the uh, Quebec Human Rights Tribunal ruled against the comedian. The Quebec Court of Appeal ruled against the comedian. The Supreme Court of Canada, though, ruling in favor of freedom of speech. And, and ruling that, that, you know, telling jokes is not discrimination. That maybe it could be under certain circumstances. In this instance here, this was somebody who was being talked about because he was a public figure. And being a public figure is not a, a prohibited grounds when it comes to discrimination. The Supreme Court said a reasonable person aware of the relevant circumstances would not view the comments as inciting others to vilify Jeremy Gabriel. But the comments considered in their context cannot be taken at face value. That it's more about the comedian, you know, saying something that makes the audience uncomfortable, that creates those feelings of discomfort. And that's the point. You know, when comedians tell uh, jokes in poor taste, deliberately tell jokes in poor taste, that it's almost kind of more about them than it is about uh, the subject they're discussing. The thing with this case and and why people had such strong views on it is because at the time, uh, Jeremy Gabriel was a teenager. He was a teenager who was born with a disorder known as Treacher-Collins syndrome. And why he became a public figure is that, I mean, he obviously had to overcome a lot, including, I think it was over 30 surgeries. He uh, was equipped with a hearing aid that allowed him to to hear. Deafness uh, is is something that can be caused by this syndrome. And he found a love of singing. And that led him to perform with uh, Celine Dion. He sang O Canada at a Montreal Canadiens hockey game. He even sang for the Pope. Colby Caution, the National Post, calls it a remarkable Quebecois treble. Colby notes, Ward's bit was edgy and tailored to the Quebec audience. The comedian's premise was that his friends had begun to complain about Gabriel's odd appearance and off-key singing, but that Ward had always defended him. And then one of the weird aspects of, of Ward's joke was this kind of mistaken belief that the, uh, that the young man had a, a terminal illness. And the idea that he became famous because he was dying and then he became famous and he didn't die. But that this wasn't a terminal illness. Nonetheless, yes, it seems provocative. It seems in poor taste uh, to be making jokes about a 13-year-old with a disability. Or to refer to him as the ugly singer. But is this something we want the courts policing? Is this something we want government institutions intervening in and punishing comedians when they're deemed to go too far? I think if a comedian goes too far, There's a market response here, which maybe to some might seem like cancel culture. But if a comedian is is over the top, if a comedian goes too far, people aren't going to follow that comedian. People aren't going to go to his shows. People aren't going to watch his specials, whatever it is. And that's okay. If you don't like a comedian, don't watch that comedian. And enough people decide that they don't like a comedian, that comedian's probably going to have to find something else to do for a living. I think there's cancel culture in the broad sense that people get offended and, you know, they want someone to go away. But when we talk about official government enforced cancel culture, that should be a no-go zone. 
So I guess we can celebrate this decision today, but still be alarmed at the fact that four Supreme Court justices were prepared to side against this comedian and impose this punishment on him for jokes that were in poor taste. Certainly one of the big stories this week, and obviously we've not yet seen the full extent of the fallout from this, depending on what happens with this lawsuit. Uh, But the lawsuit that was brought against the premier's office this week, a former chief of staff uh, working for the Alberta government, says she was wrongfully dismissed after raising concerns about a toxic workplace culture at the Alberta legislature and making some specific allegations about uh, rampant intoxication by staff and even ministers in the Alberta legislature, and also allegations uh, around sexual harassment. So some pretty serious stuff. Uh, In response to this lawsuit being filed, our next guest took to social media uh, to call on the premier to resign, saying that Kenny knew and that he needed to step down. Uh, For now, Leela here remains uh, in the UCP caucus. She is the UCP MLA for Chestermere Strathmore and joins us here this afternoon to talk about her concerns, to talk about why she spoke out and uh, what might happen next. Leela here, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. I really appreciate you inviting me on. It's very kind of you. Uh, Look, obviously, it's been a a challenging week in in a lot of different ways, and and some troubling details have come to light in this lawsuit. Walk us through your thought process here in in digesting all of this, coming, obviously, from from somebody you worked with and know well, and why you felt it was important to speak out. Yeah, um, I've said this a couple of times, but I think it's worth repeating. Um, Ariella is one of the strongest, most competent, incredible women I've ever met. Um, she uh, had a long, long-standing uh, working relationship with the premier, of course, you know, and came here to work alongside of him. And she was really our flow through to the premier's office. Like we, she worked on um, ethnic outreach. She was working on so many of the pieces that was was in the file that we, that I'm, I'm so, so, so privileged to sit with at the time, whether that was status of women or culture and multiculturalism. She um, was, she's a really principled human being and worked really, really hard. And so when she was terminated, I had so many questions that you can, yeah, it was like, I can't imagine a stronger person and why she would be terminated. And so when, um, when we, when I called her and was speaking with her, she was obviously upset, but I didn't know the, the depth or the breadth of the situation that she had gone through until, until recently, obviously. And so you had asked about, you know, the, the circumstances around that. And I just think that um, I can't talk about the lawsuit, obviously, that's, mm-hmm. that's outside of the, my capacity to have that conversation. But I've said this before, and I, and I will say this again, when you, this is a, it's a failure in leadership when you, you can't even create a safe space for a strong individual who has been nothing but unbelievably successful within the organization that you work in is terminated for no reason that I can see that was legitimate. Um, granted, I have no idea what was going on on that inner space. I can honestly say that. Um, having said that, though, I saw her work when she was um, in the Ministry of uh, Jobs, Economy and Innovation. I know the work that she did with me. I felt very, very, very honoured to have her as part of our team. 
So you've called on the premier to resign, and I'm sure that's not an easy thing for for somebody in your position, you know, the member of any caucus, governing caucus, to say. But why do you believe that he bears some, or maybe a lot, of of culpability and responsibility here? Yeah. Again, the the side of the on the law side of it, I can't speak to that. But right. here's the thing: is that. Um, what I believe that we're, you know, the principles that I'm committed to, what, 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 what I was committed to, what your founding principles are, um, you feel very strongly about that and what you're trying to accomplish. But I can never accept unethical behavior of leadership. And should it arise, I have an absolute, I'm, I, I'm absolutely responsible, not only to my constituents, but to the rest of Albertans. Um, I can't, you can't stay quiet. You know, it's um, the, it's there's just been so much destructive, ta- like destructive tax ta- tactics, and that's just been demonstrated through the lack of leadership. And I, I spoke about this, you know, a while back, but in particular to when when he was away, that he had absolutely no faith in the leadership around him to leave anybody in charge while he was gone, especially with with the numbers that were rising during the, the fourth wave of the pandemic, and. It's just that those kinds of things, like it's just, it's a tremendous failure in leadership. And when you have that, it is literally impossible for a team to be able to move forward and do what it's supposed to do on behalf of Albertans. Right. And I'm sure you realize that, I mean, you know, speaking out against the leader could come with it some consequences. Uh, maybe that means, uh, you know, you're, you're told to leave caucus. Obviously, there are those who, who are still loyal to the premier who don't appreciate you speaking out in, in this way. What about that side of it? Well, that's that's that that's that the the will of caucus and the will of the premier and um, <laughs> I can like why not just shut down another verbal woman? I mean, really, that why not just take that opportunity as opposed to looking at the opportunity to do better, right? But if the thought process is that just get rid of another strong-minded and verbal and 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 competent woman in order to satisfy the lack of leadership by all means if that's the if that's the direction that the premier wants to go and he is able to convince enough people around him that that is the solution to this i can guarantee you i'm not going anywhere whether that is through this caucus and and a, a team and of people that i actually really care about and love a lot there's a lot of competency and strong people around this table i will say this over and over again and if the premier had the grace to step down and understood that he's not resonating on so many levels, but also in particular because he just doesn't seem to be able to address the challenges that we're facing and put one of his competent ministers in there as an interim leader to help us get through this and to rebuild trust amongst people at the very, very least, um, I could respect that. But if, if removing me, because I happen to be vocal about um, about the behaviors of a premier who cannot seem to bring a team together, let alone create a safe space for women in his caucus. Um, and, and like I've said, it's not just our caucus. This isn't a UCP issue. This is an issue throughout so many political parties. I was just, I was on with, um, I listened to Jody um, Rabel Wilson this morning talking about her situation with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Like this is a, a systemic issue, right? That runs through so many of these situations. So I'm not blaming this on any particular party and particularly not on my, my colleagues by any stretch of the imagination. But if somebody doesn't stand up to a leader who does not have the capacity to understand that he's not resonating and that I, I always bring up um, prime, our Premier Palliser, right, from Manitoba. Mm-hmm. He understood just from a party side of things, from political purely, 
um, that he wasn't resonating with folks. And in order to make sure that good governance could happen, he had the grace and the ability to be able to step down and give his party a fighting chance, at least with the people, to earn their trust and their respect. And that, I appreciate that. And I thought that was really graceful. This particular situation just adds, it shines a bigger light on the fact that the Premier had no idea or concept on how to deal with this particular situation. And what's so frustrating is that this is a woman that, truly, truly cared about our party, who we are, and about the Premier, and he didn't stand up for her. It's an interesting point you raise because you ran in the last election as, as Leela here, the candidate. You ran as Leela here, the UCP candidate. Uh, you also ran as, as part of, of Team Kenny, right? He was the leader in, in the face of the party. To, to what extent does the leader become bigger than the party? I, I think your point is that mm-hmm. you're still true to the principles you ran on, and, and this is about something different. So why should you have to you know, leave caucus or, or somehow distance yourself exactly. from the party, right? Exactly. And, and I, I would love to know what happened. The person that I, you know, that I was putting my energy into, that I had faith with, that I had worked on policy with, and particularly around women. Like if you look at human trafficking and Claire's law and the work that's been done on sexual assault centers and, you know, female genital mutilation proclamations and work on you know, so much really, really comprehensive and substantive work within the ministries, but in particular of community and social services and uh, status of women and even justice, right? On anti-racism, like so much really great substantive work. And you see those opportunities and you see the, like, as, a, as in terms of leadership, what you have the capacity of doing. And then you see that internal turmoil that's happening and the lack of capacity to actually bring your own team together. Um, I often say, like, the, the unity of our party was, is like an arranged marriage. It takes a little bit of time to fall in love with each other, right? right. And you need to, you need, you need a really strong leader to be able to bring out the best and the talent and everybody around you. And in order to grow capacity and loyalty and, and, and and be everything that you need to be on behalf of the people who put you here. And it just completely, completely disappeared. There was absolutely no signs of leadership, no trust from the few people that get to be around the leader with the rest of the caucus or the ministers or, or anything like that. And that is a complete failure on his part because he had every opportunity to bring together this. This is a really great group of people. And they have every capacity to do all of the right things on behalf of the people of this province. And I believe um, that there is a humongous um, disconnect between the uh, human side of the people that we have um, in our party and what is being put forward by the leader. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Uh, in the meantime, Leela here. Thank you so much for making some time for us this afternoon. Really do appreciate this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. There you go. That's Leela here, uh, the MLA for Chestermere Strathmore, and uh, as of today, still a member of the UCB caucus. I suppressed this memory and buried this memory to chase my dreams and pursue the career that I loved and the game that I love of hockey. And the healing process is just beginning, and yesterday was a huge step in that process. This is Kyle Beach uh, speaking with TSN yesterday. Kyle Beach uh, stepping forward, identifying himself as John Doe 1 in this sexual assault investigation within the Chicago Blackhawks organization. Uh, an investigation that has been thrust back into the spotlight with the release this week of a lengthy report uh, by the law firm Jenner and Block. It was an investigation into two lawsuits filed against 
the Blackhawks, one of them filed by Beach. Uh, this involves uh, a coach with the Blackhawks, Brad Aldrich. And an encounter that occurred in 2010. Beach was 20 years old at the time. Told investigators that Aldrich threatened him with a souvenir baseball bat before forcibly performing oral sex on him and masturbating, as detailed in the lawsuit. Beach told TSN that he had his career threatened in the days after the assault and faced homophobic slurs from other players in the locker room after word spread pretty quick through the team. Said, I felt like there was a loan and there was nothing I could do and nobody got turned to for help. So Aldrich left the Blackhawks after that season, but didn't face any repercussions. 2013, he was accused of assaulting a 16-year-old student in Michigan. So the report is very damning. Uh, The full extent of the fallout, I suppose, uh, is yet to be fully measured. But a lot of it was pretty immediate, pretty significant. Stan Bowman stepped down as Blackhawks general manager, also stepped down from the position uh, with the U.S. uh, Olympic team. The team was fined $2 million. Now, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman is set to speak uh, today, we understand, with Joel Quenville, who's now moved on to the Florida Panthers, and Kevin Sheveldayoff, who's now with the Winnipeg Jets, to talk about their role in this whole situation. What did the team know? And what did they do about it? As the report suggests, that 2010, that run to the Stanley Cup, winning was more important than dealing with this. This young man was very much let down by the organization, to put it mildly. It's a really interesting piece on all of this up at nationalpost.com this afternoon on how the Chicago Blackhawks scandal is another indictment of the culture of hockey. And as our next guest says, uh, this whole situation is both shocking and utterly plausible. Scott Stinson, national sports columnist with Post Media, uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, as always, Rob. You know, it's one of those things where... You know, th- this was a ticking time bomb, right? I mean, we have this decade of, of silence and trying to sweep it under the rug. And, and looking back, I mean, did everybody involved or everybody who had some knowledge of this think that it would just always stay that way? What, what's your sense? Yeah, well, I mean, I think they did, and I think it almost did. Um, yeah. Kyle Beach said in his interview last night that he really only brought, ended up sort of bringing it forward. He's been playing in Europe for a number of years. He he described what he had gone through to a teammate there who said, Hey man, you should like, you shouldn't just not do anything about this. And then he apparently, you know, did a quick internet search for the name of, of the former coach, uh, discovered that there had been another victim in, uh, in Michigan, a high school student. And basically that will, that's what caused him to, start the process of, of lawsuits and, and, and ultimately coming forward himself because he decided that he didn't want to see this happen to other people. And, and I mean, when you think about it, uh, without that conversation and then that internet search, like it could have very easily stayed in the shadows for however much longer until all the people involved were possibly out of the NHL. So I think what happened was, they, uh, you know, dealt with it how they dealt with it, which is to say by hardly doing anything at all. And um, years went by and they probably didn't really think about it much more after that. Um, it, it it really was something where it, 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 it took a decade to pass before the 
the only person who was likely to say anything about it decided to say something about it, and, and that's ultimately what happened. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a lot of heroes in this story. There are not a lot of people that we can look to and say, you know, they did the right thing. I mean, there, there was one official within the Blackhawks organization, uh, and Rick Westhead from TSN had spoke to, you know, who would raise concerns with what he had seen and heard, and it ended up hurting his career. So someone else who, who paid a price. And I mean, you know, and credit to, to Rick Westhead with TSN for, you know, doggedly pursuing this story. And I know there are those wondering, you know, um, why have we seen the same from, you know, the broadcaster that's associated with the NHL? Maybe that's a whole other conversation. But back to that point, I mean, yeah, that's the thing, Scott. There, there should have been a lot more heroes in this story, and there really weren't. Yeah, and I think the thing that, that really, when, when you read the report that the law firm did, the thing that really leaps out to me is there is an initial meeting where after the after someone within the organization is made aware of of the allegations of what happened, there's an initial meeting really on the eve of the Stanley Cup Finals. There are all sorts of powerful people with the Blackhawks in the room. Joel Quenville, who was the co-coach at the time, Stan Bowman, Kevin Shovadeoff, uh, John McDonough, the executive uh, chief executive of the Hawks at the time, and some others. And it, like, kind of shockingly, they appear to just have basically shelved it. And then even... Even if you want to say, okay, well, maybe the Stanley Cup Final isn't the time to deal with this. When it, when the Stanley Cup Final was over two weeks later, really the only thing the Blackhawks did was McDonough talked to somebody in HR who then asked the coach in question if he was willing to have an investigation or did he want to quit, and then he quit. And that was the end of it. And, I mean, to me, that is the most shocking part is, is that even after the finals were over and the Hawks had won the Stanley Cup and they had all the opportunities in the world to seek out Kyle Beach and to make sure they understood what had gone on and to see if he was okay or traumatized or whatever, there was like basically no attempt at all from what the report indicates to to do any of that stuff. It was like, they offered the guy the opportunity to quit, he quit, and that was the end of it. And and everyone just kind of forgot about it and went about their lives. And obviously, as as Kyle Beach said in his interview yesterday, like he, he carried it with him in very painful ways for a long time. And, and he went from a, a first-round draft pick who ultimately never played a game in the NHL. And, of course, there could be other reasons for that, but it's hard to sort of think that this didn't have some significantly negative impact on his life and his career. I mean, 2010 wasn't that long ago. I mean, you know, obviously players who played on that championship team for the Blackhawks are still playing in the NHL. Some of them still play sure. in, in Chicago. But, I mean, it feels like there's there's been some change in, in how these things are talked about. Would it be naive to sit here and say, well, if this happened today, it would, it would be totally different? Man, I'd like to think that it would be totally different. But I think it would just depend on the people who are in the room at that time. And I think uh, there has been progress. Um, you know, I mentioned briefly the example of Carey Price. This is a totally different situation, obviously, but Carey Price came forward and, and put himself in the player assistance program on the eve of the season. And for the most part, the reaction to that was positive. You know, the, across the hockey world, everybody's saying, we hope he gets the help he needs, and, yeah. and we wish him the best and and all that. And I would say a couple of years ago even, I'm not sure that would have happened. I think I think some a player, a star player who suddenly 
decided they needed help would have been castigated as not tough enough or something like that. So we've seen some progress for sure. I just don't know. I'm not confident enough to say that in in the way hockey culture is and, and has been for a long time, that if we were to see something like this happen again today, that, you know, every team in the league would necessarily do the right thing and and make sure that things were properly investigated and that the the alleged victim in this kind of a situation is, is given the opportunity to, you know, have his career continue uh, unencumbered and to not be ostracized or ridiculed or whatever else appears to have happened to Kyle Beach. Yeah, and, and I mean, you mentioned for Kyle that how when he learned about, you know, the assault to the, the high school student in 2013, that how, that helped convince him that, that he really needed to say something. But, you know, we yeah. can look at this through another lens that, I mean, if the Blackhawks had taken this seriously and dealt with, with Aldridge at the time, that arguably that, that assault would never have happened. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's it's naive, I think, of us to assume that it's necessarily two incidents as well, right? I mean, he went on sure, to... Yeah. He went on to careers with USA Hockey and, and college coaching and eventually at, at a high school, and that did lead to criminal charges and, and a conviction that presumably made sure he wasn't going to coach anymore. Um, but was were these, were these the only two incidents? Were there others? We don't really know. And, and that's really the, you know, I've already said how, how shocking some of these things were, but, you know, it's a, alarming to think that, that people in positions of power would have been made aware of this kind of thing and then just been like, well, he's quitting, so never mind. And, and like, honestly, it, in a way, I'd even say uh, maybe not that surprising that some longtime hockey executives would think that way. That's not really their area of specialty. But even the Blackhawks director of human resources just kind of let him walk. Yeah. And that's kind of shocking to me. I mean, I would have thought that, in that scenario, they would have realized that they need to figure out if other employees have been subjected to this kind of treatment. I mean, and, and we haven't mentioned it, but apparently his he also came forward or intermediaries came forward to the National Hockey League Players Association, which also basically did nothing. So, I mean, the poor guy was just basically ignored at every avenue and not surprisingly, he kind of felt like he had no support anywhere because he didn't get any. Yeah. Well, in terms of what, what where this all goes from here, right? So Stan Bowman, uh, who was general manager at the time and, and up until this week was still general manager, so he's out. Yeah. He's paid a price. Yeah. Um, Joel Quenville was the coach. He's now coaching the Panthers. Uh, Kevin Dayoff was assistant GM. He's now with the Winnipeg Jets. Those two individuals will have a meeting with Gary Bettman. I mean, I don't know. Are, are they going to be fired? Do they, do they owe Kyle an apology? Like, wh- where does this all go from here? I I think it would be it would have been nice to see any of the three men you mentioned seem more contrite than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all basically sort of said, well, either some version of well, I didn't know anything about it or, until recently, or you know I apologize for my judgment at the time, something along that line. But you know, no, none of them have offered any sort of specific apology to Kyle Beach himself, um, you know, or even to John Doe. Like, there was no real acknowledgement that something bad happened here and that they should have done more to deal with it. But, look, it's a weird it's a weird situation uh, for sure, you know, as it pertains to somebody like Kevin Shevoldayoff, who was the lowest 
man on the management totem pole as far as the people who were made aware of the allegations, again, according to the how it was described in the law firm's report. So I, you, know, you can sort of make an argument that if he thought people above him were dealing with it, then he's somewhat more insulated than, say, somebody like Stan Bowman or Joel Quenville. But I don't know that Gary Bettman wants to get into sort of, uh, you know, trying to referee who has what degree of responsibility for something that was made 10 years ago. I also don't know whether they would view it as as appropriate to be disciplining senior people on different teams right. for something that happened a decade ago on a, at a different organization. So this is one where I, it's a, going to be a tricky one for, for Bettman to legislate. I, I think, like a lot of people, there's an assumption that Quenville is going to pay some sort of a price, whether it's a suspension or a, something stronger than that, only because it seems crazy to imagine that he's going to, that there'll be no repercussions for him professionally. Um, and I'd add, too, that at the time, like, he was clearly the person who was in charge of things at the Blackhawks. Stan Bowman was a first-year general manager. I'm sure the, the power structure kind of revolved around Joel Quenville. So to the extent that the leadership failed, this guy who was 20 years old at the time, I think you can make a pretty good argument that Quenville was the guy most responsible for that. So I think we'll see something there. I, I'm a little less certain on the Shovel Day Off thing because I, I do think as much as I would like to think that I would do something different in that situation, you know, like he was relatively young. He was low on the power structure. Maybe he didn't realize the extent to which it was incumbent on him to step in and do something. So we'll have to see what Batman decides, obviously. We will indeed. Uh, much more as mentioned, nationalpost.com. Scott, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Okay, thanks, Rob. Have a good one. All right, cheers. Scott Stinson, national sports columnist with Post Media. You can read his latest, as mentioned, nationalpost.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.